Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast. My name is Matt Wood, and this is episode 26. This is part two of a two-part series about Professor Eugene Hilgard from the University of California and the experimental stations that he spearheaded in the late 1800s. This episode will be concentrated on the other stations of note that the university worked with at the time. In part one, we mostly discuss the background of the stations, as well as the Foothills Experiment Station, or Jackson Station, in Amador County. This time, we will discuss the Southern Coast Station near Paso Robles, the San Joaquin Station near Tulare, the Berkeley Central Station, and the Western and Eastern Santa Clara County Stations in Cupertino and Mission San Jose, which is now Fremont, respectively. If you haven't listened to episode 24, it's worth listening to that episode before moving on to this one. Here we go. Ships that passed in the night. In part one, we discussed the Jackson Experiment Station and how the stations came to be. With the work of Eugene Hilgard and others at the University of California, the California Viticulture Commission, and the funds from the Hatch Act. As we heard previously, there were other experimental stations at the time established by Hilgard and the University of California. Some of these stations were financed by the same Hatch Experiment Station Act in 1887 that provided the funding for the Jackson Station. The first and only pre-Hatch Act station was the original Central Station in Berkeley that showed the university how valuable this research could be. There were also the private stations where the university would work with the growers and owners. Often the vineyard owner would set aside a small amount of acreage for the experimental portion. It had always been a hit-and-miss proposition for the university and grower to balance experiments and research with also producing the highest quality grapes every year. But eventually they found a small group of willing growers and worked closely with them to grow grapes and analyze the resulting wines. Even more offers of land for these private stations were made that the university declined. They were worried about their already small budgets, as well as stretching the department too thin geographically and in workload, but also being sure that the men in charge of the stations were up to the task and that authentic cuttings and grafts would be planted. Of the Hatchack stations, the Jackson station had the most written about it for many reasons, far more than the other stations. You remember all the twists and turns and losing and finding and exploring at the station years later after it had been abandoned. That didn't happen with the other stations. The Southern Coast Range Station, located near Paso, probably had the most documentation of the remaining Hatch Act stations, especially when it comes to grapes. Remember that these were agricultural stations, not strictly viticulture. The Paso Station, Tulare Station... Cupertino Station, and Mission San Jose Station will be our focus today. There was also a Hatchack Station near Pomona in the Chino Hills of Southern California, but it's extremely hard to find reliable information about it, and it won't be included today. H.W. Crabb of Oakville and the Tokalon Vineyard also worked extremely close with Hilgard and the university, but that will be a story for another day. Samples from other vineyards were also sought, and they came from far and wide. Asti in Sonoma, Sequel near Monterey, Glenwood in the Santa Cruz Mountains, San Jose, Livermore, Fresno, and more. 
The Southern Coast Range Station, aka the Paso Station, was intended to represent the largest interior valley of the Coast Range drained by the Salinas River. Like Jackson and Tulare, it was established in 1888. In the viticultural reports, this station comes across as a bit of a problem child at times. From Hillgard. The substation near Paso Robles has cost more in proportion to positive results than any other station. All the newcomers unused to the peculiar problems of soil and climate here wasted large sums of money on unsuitable crops. The substation necessarily did the same. Tree fruit, vegetables, cereals, and forage foods for cattle were all planted here. In many ways, this is what the experiment stations were designed for. Let the university study the land, what will grow, what won't, strengths, weaknesses, doing this hard and expensive work so that it wouldn't all fall on the newly settled farmers. A proper location was chosen on a plateau about three quarters of a mile east of the Salinas River and two miles from Paso. The 20-acre parcel, donated by Mr. J.V. Webster, was at about 80 feet of elevation and 1,700 by 512 feet in sort of a parallelogram shape. Much of the land was covered with blue or white oak, and the soil was generally either a lighter, sandier soil, a siltier soil intermixed with clay, or an even finer silt with very little clay that could alternate being baked hard in summer and boggy in the winter. Hilgard was excited about the station and all that was unknown about the area. Enthusiasm was also high amongst the citizens, and they helped finance and build the improvements on the land. Improvements such as a rabbit-proof fence and a well where water was hid at 95 feet were soon constructed. Like the Jackson Station, it too got an automatic gate. Large ranchos from the Spanish and Mexican land grants were still being divided up and sold off to families migrating to California, and there was much new land to settle in Paso. It had been promoted as a fruit-growing region, but Access to water and the correct soils were big questions in the minds of the Berkeley folks. Fruit trees and vineyards were to be the main crops at this station. Over 400 varieties total, peaches and nectarines 70 types, cherries 38, plums and prunes 70, almonds 10, pears 65. Most were selected from varieties that performed well in Alameda and Santa Clara counties. Apples, cherries, and peaches did best at the start. Plums the worst. There were over a hundred varieties of grapes planted too. Due to the hard pan underlying most of the soil, many trees remained small or stunted four and five years in. In 1897, apples and pears were considered the most promising tree crops and a new orchard was planted on soil without hard pan. Over the 13 years of the research station, the university concluded that apples, pears, and especially grapes would grow well in the region. They also witnessed vineyards nearby planted to Zinfandel, Movedra, Mission, Carignan, Berger, and Rose of Peru thriving. Tanat was another grape the researchers were impressed by. Like many, they felt the tannin could be a bit rough when young, but overall were very pleased with the results. Most of the deficiencies they noted at the time for wine grapes in general were a lower acidity and less color. Syrah and Mondeuse were other impressive grapes, the flavor, body, and acid being noted. It's worth saying that by these later years at the station, they were referring to Crab's Black Burgundy as Rafosco, 
and said the wine's color and acidity were very good, which meant a lot in these understated scientific papers. Of dry white wine grapes, they don't say much, except that most of the German grapes would run too high in sugar and too low in acid. Burger was the earliest recommendation, along with Trousseau Gris. All in all, many of the grapes struggled to penetrate the hard pan, their roots balling up as they struggled to reach deeper into the earth. The Paso station was abandoned in 1903. Today, of course, Paso is a thriving wine-growing region, making world-class wines. But the likely location of the experiment station is all homes. Tulare Station was established in 1888 as another Hatch Act station. This would be the San Joaquin Valley Station. The results of the experiments in vine growing and winemaking at the Tulare Station have been in many ways remarkable. Thus began one of the bulletins from Hillgard. This excitement was because the vines would take well and produce good wine from the soils and climates of the Central Valley. This 20-acre block came from Mr. B.F. Moore, the parcel chosen specifically for its few acres of alkali soils. The soil being mostly a sandy loam with a light hard pan and remarkably consistent throughout. Knowing irrigation would be needed, a 10-inch well with a depth of 60 feet was drilled. The water table at the time was only 12 feet below the surface. Now that the giant aquifer under the Central Valley has been so diminished, some towns have sunk 12 feet. Mr. Moore acted as a foreman at the beginning, grading land, putting up fences, and installing the automatic gate and well pump. Due to the alkali soils, they would receive about a 50% failure rate when planting from cuttings, but the vine would take much better when planting rooted vines. At eight feet apart, the canopies would soon form a jungle, and there was amazement and frustration in how often the canes would need to be cut back and extraneous young leaves removed. It was recommended that in the future, vines be planted 10 by 10 or 12 by 8 to allow more room to grow. Vines at the Tulare station could produce up to an astonishing 14 tons per acre. Suggested black grapes were Alicante Boucher, Crab's Black Burgundy, again also referred to as Rufosco in these reports, Barbera, Carignan, Grenache, and Valdepenas. It was suggested that dry white wines were not in the best interest of the station, but they were pleased with the success of Tinta de Madeira and Tinto Cao in port-style wine production, as well as Palomino. Some suggested blends for Tiller were Dry Red, one-third Alicante Boucher, one-third Rufosco, one-third Valdepenas. For port-style wines, half Tinta Madeira, half Tinto Cao, one-quarter Morisco Preto. Work continued here until the Tulare Station was abandoned in 1906. The Southern Station. As I mentioned, there's very little info about the Southern Station that I could find. It did have an elevation of over 800 feet and was situated on two blocks a 30-acre tract, and a 10-acre tract two miles south. Peaches get most of the attention, with some citrus crops also being written about. Most of the grapes grown in the four-acre vineyard were table grapes, with over 250 varieties planted. Although the Berkeley Central Station was initially discussed in 1870, it wasn't until 1874 that the station was ready for research. Buildings were erected, 
barns, tool houses, propagating houses, sheds, outbuildings, and even a house for hatching fish eggs. Fertilizer experiments started at once in 1874. A garden of economic plants was set aside on about an acre and a half of land in 1878 for grasses, shrubs, cereals, forage, medicinal plants, and more. The same year, experimental work was starting in viticulture and farming. Like we mentioned in part one, Hilgard and his counterparts went so far as to plant an experimental vineyard in Berkeley using infected vines to be able to study phylloxera firsthand. This led to a 15-year battle with Charles Wetmore of Livermore and the California Viticulture Commission, who had his successful Cresta Blanca winery that was free from phylloxera for now. Wetmore was unhappy to see a vineyard loaded with phylloxera planted 30 miles from his estate. During the spring of 1890, the vineyard of the Central Station was torn out in order to plant more olive trees. To continue research into phylloxera, a plot of infected vines was turned over to the university at the state home for feeble-minded children in Sonoma Valley. The station did receive shipments of Persian varieties in 1890 that would be propagated in a greenhouse and sent out to the other stations. This included Shiraz, but also Askari, Chavushi, Dismar, and Rishbaba. Due to phylloxera and the cool Berkeley climate, the university didn't have many Vitis vinifera vines at the station later. They did, however, have a collection of native grapes, including Riparia, Californica, Cenaria, Candy Cans, and Rupestris, and also an Asiatic selection, which included Romanetti in red and white varieties, Opamon, and more. The University of California did work with select private vineyards for experimentation, and chief among them was Cupertino. Another on the other side of Santa Clara Valley was located at Mission San Jose and run by Mr. J. Gallegos. The Cupertino station is next on our list. I'm going to start out by saying that the early nickname for the Santa Clara Valley, Valley of the Heart's Delight, is one of my favorite names for anything. My family used to farm in this area, and it still holds a special place in my heart. The time period we discuss today is a long time before Silicon Valley. Before we get to the Cupertino station, I want to take a quick detour to a side story, because one name that comes up in a lot of these reports is William M. Pfeffer and Pfeffer's Cabernet. You really only see it planted in this narrow band of central California. Pfeffer's ranch in this case was located in Gubserville, which was between San Jose and Saratoga at the base of the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was a postal stop until 1897. A Portal's Cabernet was also mentioned a lot, from a JBJ Portal. Both of these grapes had claimed to be a clone of Malbec, but as early as 1884, Hilgard and others were beginning to have their doubts. Writing that despite an overall high quality, it was remarkably different from true Malbec and the tannin and body have always measured lower. In one viticultural report, it's said to have a taste much like the true Cabernet, but the vines and leaves looked totally different. It was also suspected at one point to be Cabernet Franc, but again, bunches, leaves, seeds, and stems all looked different. Robin Noir was another possibility. They suspected it might blend well with Poussard, Merlot, or Malbec. Over the last decade or so, this obscure grape has had a real resurgence with smaller California producers. 
Growing almost exclusively in San Benito, it's been called a few other things over the years. Trousseau, Grover Doe. I think most believe it's Moritau, but we'll get back on track to Cupertino. Mr. John T. Doyle was a San Francisco lawyer and graduate of both Columbia and Georgetown universities. Able to speak and write Spanish and French and read Italian, Portuguese, and German, he was something of a Renaissance man, farmer, lawyer, Shakespeare fanatic, and book collector. He was involved in early California law, helping to found the SF Law Library and working on cases involving pricing quantities of gold dust and enacting regulations on railroads over shipping rates. Some of these laws are still on the California books today. He was also the head lawyer for the San Francisco Archdiocese and on the first board of regents for the University of California, just to give you an idea of his prominence in the young state. Much of his land holdings were in the Menlo Park and Cupertino area, his damming of sections of Stevens Creek, installing pumps along the way to power the winery, later became the basis for Cupertino's first water system. Ringwood, as Doyle called his property, was originally a part of Rancho Las Pulgas from the Spanish land grants. About 1880, he started planting and soon had 200 acres planted to grapes. Some of the wines from these grapes, like the Cabernet Sauvignon, were sold as far away as London. Doyle set aside part of his vineyard to conduct experiments for the university. His main vineyard, which he called Las Palmas, was planted with cuttings brought by Giovanni, or John, Beltramo from Asti, Italy during his immigration to America. Beltramo immigrated in 1879 at the age of 20 to work with his cousin Alessandro Filippello at Las Palmas, bringing cuttings of Barbera, Frisia, Bonarda, Nebbiolo, and Grinolino with them first planting them at Doyle's personal vineyard. For some of these varieties, like Barbera, this was most likely the first time it was imported to the U.S. Doyle also had a country estate that he planted to Zinfandel in 1883, and portions of this would become his experimental vineyard. 1886 was the first harvest from these young vines, and 36 samples were fermented, many at different stages of maturity, sugar levels, and pH. Of note was that 1886 was a cool growing season and provided Hilgard and the university a chance to see what would ripen well even under cooler than normal conditions in California. Two things that jump out are that this tract was said to be very level and the soil very uniform. This varies from what was desired in some of the other experiment stations, but Hilgard felt it would allow them to see clearly how the different varieties behaved on the western side of Santa Clara Valley. They would use this info to better assess how grapes would grow from Mountain View in the north to New Almaden in the southwest. Clay loam with intermixed gravel made up the majority of the soil. Much of it washed down from the coast range over centuries. 37 rows, 8 feet apart, with 40 vines per row made up his experimental block. The university grafted most of this Zinfandel over to some now well-known grapes like Barbera, Nebbiolo, Malbec. Semillon, Pinot St. George, Pulsard, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Syrah. Other lesser-known grapes with names like Herbamont, Chase Noir, West's St. Peter, Groblau, and Lignanza were grafted alongside. Some from the university collection and others directly imported Italian varieties brought by Mr. Beltramo. After the 1886 harvest, 
Some additional Zinfandel was grafted over with more varieties they were curious about. Verdello, Mondus, Uni Blanc, Black Prince, Merlot, Senso, Bastardo, Tinto Cow. The list goes on. An additional 20 rows were provided to the university for these new curiosities. The vineyard now made up about 2,400 vines on three and a half acres. An Italian ampliographer, Count Giuseppe de Rovacenda from Turin, had by now imported many of the same grapes that Beltramo had brought over almost 10 years before, plus many additional ones. The Count's collection of grapes in Italy numbered around 4,000. These wouldn't be the last planted in this vineyard that was now home to nearly 100 varieties. The idea was at least thrown out there that Doyle's vineyard could serve as a library vineyard in order for the university to get a handle on the many vines being imported from Europe at the time under many different names. The university also commonly misspelling many of these names. Barbarafina is one of the confusions. We know Doyle had Barbera and Barbarafina planted at his Cupertino vineyard. Cuttings of the Barbarafina were planted at the Jackson Station via the Berkeley Central Station. These are most likely from the Beltramo cuttings, but it remains a possibility they came from Rovacenda. And unfortunately, this wasn't one of the cuttings Goheen brought back to the university when the Jackson Station was rediscovered. Doyle also gave the city of Cupertino its name after a nearby creek. The Spanish missionary who named that creek, Pedro Font, was also the first to use the term Sierra Nevada on a map of California. Mission San Jose, or Eastern Santa Clara Station. Juan Gallegos, or John Gallegos, was originally from Costa Rica. Part of a prominent family, his father was sent by King Charles of Spain and eventually became Costa Rica's first president. Gallegos had 4,539 acres, 610 of them under vine and he dedicated three of those acres to an experimental station. This vineyard was originally established at Mission San Jose, now a part of Fremont, California. After secularization of the missions, it fell into neglect and disrepair until Mr. Beard started the vineyard back up from 1851 to 1858 under a sketchy title to the land. His involvement would stall as civil war and his work with John C. Fremont called. When he returned in 1865, he got a clean title to the land and had a good run for a few years. Described as a man of grand schemes and noble visions, his investments had always been suspect. In 1880, after he passed away, the title of his bankrupt property went to the French-American Bank of America, where Juan Gallegos was able to purchase it. Gallegos had made his fortune in the coffee and banking business in Costa Rica. After a short stay, he moved to Nicaragua and took over a struggling coffee plantation, turned it around, and sold it off to move back to Mission San Jose. 450 acres of the 610 were planted to Zinfandels, with an S on the end. So maybe that's all Zin. Maybe some Carignan, Mataro, Alicante, Petit Syrah, and others made their way into the mix too. Cabernet Sauvignon, Tanat and White Riesling made up the other 160 acres. Hilgard was friends with Gallegos, and eventually purchased 30 acres from him to build his Dos Encinas estate. In the viticultural reports of the mid-1880s, Hilgard begins speaking about the grapes growing in his vineyard and submitting samples and practical experience with Barbera and rootstock trials. 
It was said by Maynard Amerine that this purchase of Dos Encinas kept Hilgard nearly in debt or in debt for many years. 25 varieties were planted in the experimental plot. Gallegos had also built a gravity-fed three-and-a-half-story winery with a tank capacity of a million gallons. And Hilgard eventually became a director of the wine company Gallegos founded. A theme running through lots of the grape reports from Gallegos is over-ripeness and damaged grapes, more so than from grapes being delivered to the university from the further-flung stations. He also purchased the first pasteurizer in California, from France, a technology Hilgard seems to have been very much into. Competition, a low wine market, and some IRS issues brought Gallegos' wine business to a halt. It was sold to a relative and eventually became Palmdale Winery. He lived a short ways away, raising limes, avocados, and bananas, until in 1905 he had an accident falling down a flight of stairs and passed away soon after. The winery building was destroyed in the 1906 earthquake. In the viticultural reports, we see how grape and wine samples were analyzed. Samples would come from all corners, Asti in Sonoma, Oakville in Napa, Santa Cruz Mountains, Fresno, Livermore, and of course all the experiment stations. Sometimes a grape or wine would be judged on its own merits. Other times the Zinfandels they received would be put into a report together, comparing, contrasting, analyzing, and judging the grapes and wines from different growers and regions. Some notes about these follow. Number 1120, Merlot, from J. Gallegos, Mission San Jose. The grapes arrived October 1st, 1889, in good condition, except for overripeness, there being many dried grapes. They are crushed October 2nd, the juice showing 24.8% of solid contents. Fermentation reached its maximum of 90.5 degrees on October 5th. The murk was drawn off October 7th. Four and one-half days from crushing, the 70.5 pounds crushed gave 5.81 gallons, corresponding to 162.6 gallons per ton. The acid in the must and wines is almost throughout very low, and thus it may be expected that the fermentation would be benefited by blending in the vat with more acid grapes, as the wine alone appears to be somewhat difficult to keep. Number 440, Zinfandel, 1885, from J.T. Doyle, Cupertino. Conditions of sample, clear with intense red color, vinous, well-developed flavor and good astringency. Taste, Swedish. Body, heavy. Aside from sugar, general quality, high. Number 350, Pfeffer's Cabernet from William Pfeffer's Vineyard, Gubserville. Grapes arrived September 24 and were worked the same day. The condition of grapes was excellent, though the bunches were small. The juice showed 24.95% solid contents by spindle. The fermentation of 67 pounds crushed began September 25th and reached its maximum on September 28th at 80 degrees. The room, 72 degrees. Then slowly fell to the temperature of the room when the murk was drawn off, 10 days from the crushing. The yield from the above amount being 5.62 gallons, or at the rate of 168 gallons per ton, Pomace, 18.5%. I found a lot of this info about the other experimental stations fascinating. It's admittedly a little scattered, and the story isn't always as complete with these other stations as with the Jackson station. The industry at the time was still relatively small, and 
Charles Shin, John Beltramo, Juan Gallegos, and more find themselves popping up in other episodes or upcoming ones. I think it's interesting to end this episode how we ended part one by reminding ourselves what Maynard Amorine wrote about Hilgard. Although the Prohibition period removed many of the results of Hilgard's work from California vineyards, the influence of his far-reaching and systematic attack on the problems of California's grape and wine industry can still be detected today. He suggested that the influence of Hilgard waned post-Prohibition because of vineyard replanting that prioritized easy-to-ship grapes or table grapes, and that many of the most quality-conscious winemakers had left the industry during Prohibition. And one last quote from Hilgard to end our episode. If the experiment stations do not do this work for the farmer, who is to do it? Thanks for listening today to part two on the experiment stations. I think the findings at each station are so interesting to hear over a hundred years later. So many things have changed. Prohibition, attitudes about fine wine, the climate, and the massive amount of people that have moved to California. But you can see them setting the groundwork for the California wine industry. Again, I think I was pretty careful with my sources, but if you heard any errors, please let me know. I want to get it all correct. Some of the people in the series we'll see pop up again. Oh, and the quote at the beginning is the title of a chapter from a report of Hilgard discussing the demise of the stations. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening and the Instagram at IndieWine Podcast. And feel free to email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or feedback. If you can tell your wine friends about the podcast too and help spread the word, I'd really appreciate it. Rating or subscribing helps too. There's also now a Patreon setup if you feel like supporting the podcast monetarily to hopefully allow for more episodes, more travel, and to help defray other costs. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. Have a good one.